You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Um, normally, this is the, the least attended day of the year, so it doesn't feel least attended, but if it is, you guys are the elite, the committed, so good job. All right, so real quick, we're going to knock out our memory verse. It's the last um, Sunday of the month, so we're going to finish that up. We don't need it on the screen. Um, it's Ephesians 6.4. The first word is Father, so let's do that together. Ready? One, two, three. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Good job. Sounded good. We'll see what's, uh, what's on the docket for January. All right, so today we're going to be back in Luke. Um, we're picking up from where we left off over three weeks ago. We took a little detour. We studied the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, and got to learn about parenting and family shepherding and family worship, and that was incredible. But now we're back in Luke. Uh, we're going to continue this journey. Uh, one of the many benefits to the way we, we preach through books of the Bible here, expository preaching, is that it doesn't really allow for us to pick and choose what topics that we get to preach on. We can't avoid tough topics, rather. Instead, we rely on God's sovereignty, his wisdom. He picks the, the text that we get to go through at the time when we may need it most. So today, our text centers around the judgment of God. It's one of those more unpopular and um, unknown, un, unknown topics of God, or attributes of him, rather. So we're going to watch Jesus, in our text, judge some Pharisees. We're going to watch him judge them for their rejection of him, and we're going to see why he rejects them, or why, um, I'm sorry, why they reject him, and therefore bring about his judgment. We're going to see deep down at a heart level the, the cause of that rejection of Christ. Now, many of us, in regards to this attribute of God's judgment, if we're not reading and studying the Word of God regularly, we're going to have some misconceptions around the idea of God's judgment. It's an aspect of His nature that we just don't talk about or interact with very often. It's kind of unpopular in our culture. It's not difficult, though, to understand Many think that the judgment of God is an Old Testament attribute that kind of ended there. Or conversely, they may think it's just a New Testament final judgment that's going to happen sometime in the future. It's unimaginable. We don't really know what's going to happen or what it's going to be like. So we, we just kind of forget about it. J.I. Packer says this about the final judgment. He says, the event is unimaginable, no doubt. But human imagination is no measure of what a sovereign God can and will do. So that would be a misconception, though, to think that God only judges in the future. Another misconception we have is we like to think of Jesus as this updated version of the God of the Old Testament. He's come to preach grace and truth and salvation, which of course he has, but he's an improvement upon the Old Testament God who is temperamental, 
angry. His ways may seem antiquated to some. We reject this idea that Jesus would have something negative to say about our behavior. In that worldview, though, the gospel becomes a license to sin and also a way into heaven rather than the power to produce righteousness and a way into heaven. So the gospel very much saves our souls. It also produces the righteousness in us that we all long for. So it's unfortunate that many of us would think that it's unkind for God to judge his creation. What father, though, would not want to offer judgment on his child's actions? Imagine if you just stopped saying something critical of your children. You're saying by default that they're not important to you or that they're smarter than you. Now, we know that we are important to God and we're certainly not smarter than God. We, as Christians, are a vessel of God's glory. He's going to manifest his glory to the world through us. And as an unbeliever, we're a vessel. You will be a vessel of his wrath, which will also be made manifest to the world, just in a different way. But either way here, God is using you for his glory. And to that end, you are very important. Now, he doesn't need us to respond to him. If he needed anything from us, he wouldn't be God. But we always need him. His ways are always higher than ours. Ephesians 1 says, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Many of us think that he works things according to the counsel of our own will. My family and I watched um, Jingle Jangle on Netflix this past week. And um, basically it's where this toy inventor, he creates toys and he creates a new toy and with this magical pixie dust and it comes to life. And almost instantly, I get the feeling nobody's watched it in here because I'm feeling, okay, few. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a hit. Anyways, um, it, was, it was not a great movie. I don't, not my opinion. So anyways, this thing comes to life and immediately you get the sense like, okay, the inventor is not in control of this creation anymore. He created it. He's obviously really good at inventing things, but he is not, no longer in control. It has this like big, arrogant personality. And um, you just get the feeling like, I wonder what's going to happen. Like, you have no clue. The creator certainly doesn't know. So many of us feel this way about God, though. He created us powerful, wisdom, like intelligence. He created us. But then he can't really sustain us. He doesn't control us. He doesn't want to control us. He doesn't really desire that. He's just kind of waiting to see what happens. But God does not create us with this magical pixie dust that gives us some type of autonomy with this mythical, absolute free will that allows us to do whatever we feel that will surprise God. We cannot surprise God. That's the fairy tale. It's not the God of the Bible. It's a God that culture has created to avoid topics about God that they would like to avoid, such as his judgment. God is our source of life. Every breath of our lungs and beat of our hearts, it comes from him. Our every thought is known by him. It's governed by him. Even sin in the way that it has distorted our heart, it's known by and it's ultimately allowed by God. He knows our actions, the secret ones, but more importantly, he knows the wickedness of our hearts to a depth that we do not. So God knows us deeply. We are extremely important to him and his judgment is actually proof of that. So even if it's uncomfortable today as as we dive into this, we have to see that God's love for us is shown to us through his judgment. Today in our text, we're going to see the judgment of God upon 
his people in Israel, where he calls them evil, he calls them wicked. And although they are evil and wicked, and we'll see why, we have to be willing to identify with this wickedness. The Bible calls all men wicked. Because of our sin, our hearts are wicked. It's absolutely impossible to walk with God in accordance to his law perfectly. Our sin will not allow for it. And Romans 6.23 shows us that the wages of sin is death. So sin comes with a cost then, and that is death. And the vehicle that death comes through is the judgment of God. But as we will hopefully see today, that's a good thing. So another thing we need to be able to see before we get into the text is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, he's fully capable and he's fully comfortable in judging the world. It's his purpose to and his pleasure to judge the human race. Now it is interesting to do this at this time because for the last month we've been We've been meditating on the story of his birth and the reason for him coming to the earth, which is to save sinners, which is true. He did do that. But in, built into that idea intimately is the inescapable fact that we are the sinners that he came to save and that our sin will be judged. So it is this perfect judgment, this final and terrifying judgment of God that will highlight the fact that he humbled himself enough to come to the earth and save him from his own judgment. So ultimately, his judgment is what makes his birth matter. And judgment belongs to Jesus alone. We're going to look at two verses, very short and very clear, that proves this to us. John 5, 22 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Acts 10, 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead, he being Jesus. So just two simple verses that prove to us Jesus is our judge, not the God of the Old Testament. Now further proof can be found. I'm so glad Tanner played Yahweh today. I wasn't going to tell him. He must have looked at my notes. Um, but I was going to prove to you through, through this little infographic here that uh, Yahweh is the same as Jesus. So first off, let's look at the name of Yahweh. This is the name that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. It's also Jehovah, but modern scholars call it Yahweh. And when it's written down, it's written down all capitalized Lord. So over 5,000 times in the Old Testament, you will see the name Lord, all caps. That is Yahweh. That is God's personal name that he gave to his people in Israel. Now let's look at the name of Jesus. The, Jesus is the Greek name of the Hebrew name, Yeshua. And Yeshua is built up of two words, Yeho and Shua. Yeho means Yahweh. It's the same word as Yahweh. And then Shua is salvation. So Jesus' name is Yahweh is salvation. Jesus and Yahweh are the same person, the same God. And I, I say all that, I show you that just to make perfectly clear that Jesus can rightly be seen as judge. God's the same today, yesterday, forever. His attributes are inexhaustible. The holiness or the set-apartedness of each of those attributes is inexhaustible. And today is just an exercise in trying to exhaust them. We're trying to know him more. And today we're going to spend time looking at the attribute of his judgment. The title of the message this morning is Jesus, Judge of the World. 
As we observe him today, if you were in Christ, you're going to be assured. You're going to be comforted that when you are judged, you will not be found wanting. He's going to give us clear evidence. If you're not a believer, though, you will be convicted. I pray you will. You will see and feel the weight of condemnation that is before you. You will understand the reality that you have no excuse to not believe. It doesn't matter if the evidence isn't convincing. It doesn't matter if you have a hard time believing because you're more logical, you're more rational. You don't trust the evidence. We must believe or we will perish. And Christ, in his grace, has given us everything we need to believe. Hopefully I can prove that to you today. Jesus' words will reveal the heart behind our unbelief, the root cause of it. And it's going to show us why we have no excuse to remain in doubt. Now, to those who doubt, so I don't lose you, I did for years. And I sat in church for years, doubting everything that came out of the preacher's mouth. So today, if you're like that, you're going to see where that comes from, the root cause of it. The words of Christ, not mine, will show you that you have everything you need to believe. Everybody does. And unfortunately, you also have everything you need to be judged. So if this sermon is effective, it's going to strengthen your faith. Not only strengthen, but it's going to show you the simplicity of living for God, the simplicity of living with faith for God. It's going to show you the simplicity is actually found in just the non-negotiable act of reading your word daily. It's that simple. And here, I believe, this, this is where God shows his wisdom and his sovereignty. The last Sunday of the year, before we start as a church, the Bible reading plan, one of these. Uh, this is a natural application that came out of this text. I didn't even think that we were starting this or it was a new journey. But you're going to see today the primary application is going to be getting in the word. So we're starting this as a church, and I've reconned it. I read it for a few days. I love it. This, we didn't create this. It's been around for a long time. It's very effective. Um, it has you reading from four different places um, each day, two places in the Old Testament, usually typically longer passages than the New Testament, and you're going to finish them both right about the same time. So one thing to note, because I've done one of these before, they are, um, they're typically primarily focused on familiarity with the Bible. You don't really want to take time to do commentary to really dig into it too much because you're going to fall behind. Now, there's a place for the slow study, too. You need to do that at least once a week, I believe. Um, but this is more like if you're, you know, to follow me here on this illustration, yard work. So you're cutting the grass. This is the mowing, okay? You're like steadily and methodically mowing the yard. You're ignoring the weed eating that needs to be done, the pressure washing that needs to be done, the caulking you missed on your trim. You have to ignore all that. Um, now, if you're, if you're not someone who likes yard work, it could also be looked at relationally. So you just think of the Bible, ladies and guys, every book is like a future best friend, right? And so you don't learn everything about them in one sitting. You just got to get to know them. You got to show up, be consistent, be patient. And eventually, over time, you're going to get to know the Bible very well. So that's my charge to you, my encouragement to you. Um, do this plan with us. Hold each other accountable. And uh, it will benefit you greatly, I promise. I'm a testament to that. So with all that being said, we're going to pray, and then we're going to actually get into our text. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you because you're holy, because you're righteous. You're better than everything 
in the whole world. You're so superior to all the worldly things that we strive for at times. God, please lead us. Please keep us in your will, your perfect will, your wise will this morning. Let us be people that are set apart to you. Guide us through this text. Apply it to our hearts and wisdom and all the good purposes, all the plans that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Luke chapter 11, 29. If y'all wanna turn there, we're gonna read it first. It says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, first we need to just do a background recap of what we've been going through. Because like I said, we did take a three-week break. So think back to the book of Luke in general as we're looking at it broadly. Remember, uh, chapters 9 through 19 were primarily walking with Jesus through the Palestinian countryside on our way to Jerusalem. And the primary purpose of this time is training his disciples, training them to take over the ministry when he leaves. He has months left of his time on earth before he's crucified. So the ministry that he's training his disciples in is the development and the establishing of his church on this earth. It's the mission of of his disciples to go out and evangelize the whole world. Now, it's the same era that we're in now as a people after we're in the last days as they were then, as we are now, we're in the last days waiting for him to return. And so our charge is the same as his. And so we are right to impress these teachings onto ourselves as he gives to his disciples. So we need to learn like the disciples did the purpose of Jesus's ministry, the methods of his ministry. We need to be engaged as his disciples were in the building of his church and the expansion of his kingdom here on earth. Now, primarily today, he's teaching that his judgment comes on all who reject him. If you remember back to when Mike Lindstedt preached, starting in verse 14, all the way through the end of the chapter, we're going to see Jesus engage exclusively with the Pharisees and lawyers. And then at the end of, or I'm sorry, at the beginning of chapter 12, he's going to engage directly to his disciples with some helpful training. So primarily, Jesus is issuing a judgment on the evil and wicked hearts of the Pharisees, and we just have a front row seat. It's kind of like when someone gets in trouble for doing the exact same thing you're doing, they're next to you. It's like maybe you're speeding down the interstate, or maybe you don't know how fast you're going, but a cop comes behind you with his lights on, you're going to think, oh, he's pulling me over. You start pulling over, he flies by you. You're like, yes, (laughs) I got away with it. So this is what's happening. We, We are viewing this judgment on the Pharisees. So we can learn a lot from this. Now, chapter 11, 
We're in 29, so the beginning of chapter 11, it started with a mini-series on prayer, which was just explicit training for the disciples, directly to the disciples, and then it transitions to the indirect training. Mike Lindstedt preached on Jesus casting out demons by the power of Satan. He presented the Pharisees with this logic problem, basically saying, like, if I cast out Satan by Satan's power, then how can Satan's house stand? It didn't make any sense. It was impossible So the Pharisees were then thrown, their logic was thrown out by Jesus. Now our text today is actually a resolution of that further because we'll see there's one verse that was untouched and unattended until now. Then following Mike Linstead's message, Josh Seal preached on moral reformation and he showed us that being moral but not having the right heart profits us nothing. He showed us that morality, religion outside of a relationship with Christ is a recipe for disaster. Said a third way, being good without God is the absolute worst thing for your soul in regards to the judgment of God. We ended that text with verse 28 saying, blessed is he who hears the word of God and keeps it. Helpful advice. Greatly informs today's text as well. Luke's presenting a contrast between those who try to appear good and moral on one hand, and then those who seek God with humility through his word, primarily with their whole heart. So our text, like I said, begins in 29, but it's answering an objection raised by the Pharisees in verse 16. So just go up in your text to verse 16 or flip a page back. It says, while others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So this wasn't said out loud, but Jesus knows their hearts, it says later on. And so this is what we're gonna be covering today. We all know by now, hopefully, that the Pharisees are the religious rulers in Jerusalem at the time, and Palestine overall, the general area. And they all got together. They have this master plan. They're gonna overthrow Jesus. He is not the Messiah, they say. We got to get him out of here. How are we going to do this? So they got like a three-tiered plan. They're going to denounce his miracles or attempt to, mostly his resurrection. Uh, They're going to call him out for blasphemy or um, exercising demons by the power of Satan. And some will ask for more signs. So Jesus is just overcoming their objections one by one. This is why it's helpful to us. Now, this objection seems to go unnoticed because he spends the next 14 or so verses taking care of the first objection that he casts out demons by Satan's power, We're gonna, which, which we saw then clearly it was impossible, illogical. But unfortunately for them, it, it is their greatest defense. This is like a backup defense. So it's going to be much easier to, to overturn. So he's ready to answer their objection, but he has to wait, it seems like, for the crowds to build. Because it says when the crowds were increasing, he began to say. So this, we know, is a common teaching of his. We have, um, we have very similar texts in Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 8 that teaches the same um, story, they're, but they're slightly different. So that tells us that this happens a lot. So our first words, we'll get into the text, says, when the crowds were increasing... This is showing us that he was waiting for the right time. Now, 12.1, if you go over or down in your Bible, paints a little clearer picture for us. It says, this is what a crowd is, if you didn't know. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. 
So this is the crowd that Jesus is waiting for. It's like Mardi Gras at its worst, or, or its best, I don't know. Then he calls them evil. This, the, next, the next part of the verse says, this generation is an evil generation. Now this is how he starts his sermon. No good morning, no, uh, hey, how's everybody doing? No, um, no jokes, no discussion on politics or anything. He just goes for the jugular with this bold statement of fact. Matthew 12, 39 doesn't soften the blow at all. It's in this account, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Adulterous is like saying they're unfaithful to God, or as James puts it, friends with the world. Mark 8 says he sighed deeply in his spirit. I think as parents, we can relate to this a little bit. You can just imagine this intense mix of anger, frustration, sadness, Jesus is constantly dealing with their hardened hearts, not to mention personal rejection of him. We've all been rejected before. Jesus had it every single day of his life. Now, although Christ is not talking directly to us or directly to his disciples here, we need to be willing, as they say, if the shoe fits, to apply this to our own lives. We need to see where and if we're being evil, wicked, and adulterous or unfaithful. Remember 1 John 1.8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So don't check out just because you know you don't reject Jesus. How can we be sure we never will? We need to study those who do. So we know all men are evil, all men are wicked, so, and we need to be able to relate to this. This is not his primary point, I know, but he's about to show them why he, they are being judged as evil and wicked. And I want everyone here to be primed and ready to apply this to our own hearts. We're going to see two ways he shows us to avoid receiving the same judgment. Sorry. <clears throat> so he explains now very clearly why they're being called evil. It says it seeks for a sign. So they're being called evil because they seek for a sign that is clear However, why them seeking for a sign is evil is not clear. It only becomes apparent in, in more context. We're going to dig in a little deeper. Up until this point, Jesus has given numerous miracles and signs through his works and through his words or his teachings. Jesus came to this earth with a plan to prove his existence, even though technically he didn't need to. Everyone knows that God is real. Look at Romans 119 and 20. Paul writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. The point is here, these Pharisees intentionally ignore and purposely misconstrue the facts that are before them. And you know, I said they tried to denounce his miracles, but they really don't that we know of. We do read how they tried to um, cover up the story of his resurrection by paying people to say that the body was stolen by the disciples. But that wasn't denouncing. That was actually admitting to it and then trying to cover it up. So in our text, he's responding, remember, to those who are seeking a sign. It's basically like the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you got to prove it to us. 
You gotta prove to us that you are the Christ. Do something, like go up in heaven, twirl around, write it in the sky with your finger. You gotta do something. We don't know what exactly they were looking for. And it's this heart behind their doubt that is enough to get the judgment from Jesus that they are evil and wicked because they asked for the sign. The point to us is that Jesus doesn't let us off the hook by claiming he didn't give us enough proof. You can't escape God's judgment by hiding your head under a rock. In our legal system in America, there's a common adage, ignorance of law is no excuse. The term for this would be mistake of law. I have a little slide here. There's two ways you could find justice from the law if you break the law. Mistake of law or mistake of fact, or you could just own up to it. Mistake of law, we'll see, is a feigned ignorance, pretending uh, you don't know that it's not true. You would say things like, I didn't see the signs. And really, it's just an unwilling to want to follow the law. Mistake of fact is admissible in court if you can prove it. It's based on misinformation, but it is at its heart level genuinely an intent to keep the law. It's just you're unable for whatever reason. So mistake of law uh, example would be, I drove through Texas like 10 years ago and I asked the first service and I don't know if this is still a thing, but back then the speed limit was 80 miles an hour during the day and 65 at night. So I don't know if that's still the case. The point is, typically if you're driving 10 miles, and over, 10 miles per hour over the speed limit, as soon as it hits night, you're 25 over. That's 25, you could lose your license for that. So you don't get to tell the judge or the cop or whoever that you didn't know that the, that the speed limit changed. The signs are everywhere. And even if you didn't see it out of ignorance, it's right and it's just for the judge to still hold you accountable to the fine or the penalty. Because ignorance is no excuse. Now, mistake of fact would be, let's say you're driving a rental car across Texas, you just picked it up. For some reason, no fault of your own, let's say the speedometer was like calibrated wrong. It's saying you're going 65, but you're actually going 80. If you could prove this and you were able to defend yourself, you could potentially get off the fine or at least get the company to pay for the ticket because your intent could be shown to want to follow the law. But because of mistake of fact, you could not and you did not. Now the Pharisees here are basically claiming mistake of law, which is no excuse in itself, we've seen, However, Jesus is responding, no, there's no mistake of law at all. He's, he's given them plenty of signs. And then he proves it by his grace. He gives us two cases to look at. You could call this a case law where judges in our time will look at famous cases typically seen by higher courts in the past. And this helps the judge be consistent with the law. They learn a lot from cases that have happened in the past. Now, Jesus doesn't need any help staying consistent with the law. He is the law, the law giver. But by his grace, he's helping us see that he is being consistent. So his two case studies come from, uh, number one, the story of Jonah, and then the second one will be Queen Sheba, or Queen of the South, which is a quick little story in Kings we'll cover, and you'll learn all about that. So Jesus, our Jesus, he's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, Judge of Judges, and he will come to judge the world. This has always been his plan. Now, his first mission to earth was primarily to seek and save the lost. But that is in preparation for his ultimate visit, which will be to judge the world. So 
Even though he hasn't judged the world yet, he is still the judge of the world, and that's what we're seeing today. The two cases show us two things about Jesus' judge of the world. Number one, Jesus' judgment comes on those who reject his resurrection. And number two, Jesus' judgment comes on those who reject his wisdom. Now, what's interesting is on the surface, this group of people, the, the religious leaders, Israel, the Pharisees, whatever you want to call them, they, on the surface, are the most religious, moral group of people on the planet, maybe in the history of the world. Think about it. They've been faithfully following God for over 400 years. No prophets, no signs, no direct access or, or miracles from God. Just read through Judges or Kings or Chronicles to see how quickly Israel would stray from Yahweh. It seems within 400 years they're doing pretty good. But Jesus does not judge our behavior only. He judges our hearts. So certainly our hearts do. They inform our behavior. They influence our behavior greatly. But it's, as we all know, it's easy to get a false positive. You can act right, but be doing it for the wrong reasons. On the other hand, you don't ever get really a false negative where someone acts evil, but is actually a loving Christian underneath. That doesn't happen. So it's paramount that our, that our faith produce works in us. Because if we believe, then naturally, just a consequence of believing and seeing God, we're going to bear fruit. James 2.17 says, so also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But many can fake the fruit through religious and moral improvements. This is why at verse 28, it was so important to end the last section. Hear the word of God and keep it. So we cannot hide our sin from God. This is why Israelites are being judged. It's their hearts that is unhidden from God. And ultimately, it's the same thing we'll be judged by as our hearts. So they're thinking this in verse 16 when they said, when they thought to themselves, Jesus needs to show us a sign. He let it go for a time and now he's coming back on them. And this is why it's evil that they seek for a sign. First of all, Jesus has given them countless signs and miracles. He's also admittedly impressed them with his teaching. Remember uh, Matthew seven twenty-eight at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew from five to seven, they say that he, they, were, they marveled at his teaching. So they are impressed with him, and they've seen all his miracles. Jesus here is judging their pride. It's interesting that the Pharisees don't attempt to denounce any of his miracles. You would think that'd be their first defense. It's certainly the 21st century atheist's first defense, but it's not the Pharisees, the ones that walked with Jesus. It's because his miracles are undeniable. Just think about it logically. The fact that they've stood the time for over 2,000 years and still regard it as true, with all the eyewitnesses that walked with Jesus, all of the crowds that followed him, if you say you can't believe because you weren't there, you still wouldn't be satisfied. These men were there. They obviously believed in the miracles. They saw them with their own eyes, did not denounce them, and yet they still reject Jesus as the Christ. The reason you can't believe is because like them, you're evil and wicked, as all men, evil and wicked. We must become poor in spirit. We must become humble if, before we believe. Look further at their hearts 
This will be on the screen, Matthew 28, 11 through 15. This is their hearts regarding the resurrection. It says, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. They knew the resurrection was true. And then they bribed soldiers to lie about it. Yet they demand a sign. Now, I know this is out of order chronologically, but remember, Jesus judges our hearts and he knows the future. So these men are being judged on the current state of their hearts that will be responsible for the future rejection of Jesus's resurrection. So the sign that they were seeking did not exist. Most likely they, they did believe deep down, like they knew it, they knew it was true, naturally, intuitively. But this is an outright active rejection of him as the Christ. The real reason we reject God is it's not because of lack of proof, it's because of pride. C.S. Lewis has a chapter on pride in his book, Mere Christianity, so I want to read just a few quotes from it. He talks about pride as being inherently competitive, and this is what sets it apart from the other sins, more carnal and desires of the flesh are the other sins, but pride is so evil because it's inherently competitive against other people. Satan's pride was a competition with God, this is also how he man manipulated Eve. Cain murdered his brother, Abel, out of a competitive evil heart, prideful heart. Money, fame, success, these things become evil when pride causes them to want you to want more than another person. Lewis calls it a pleasure of being above the rest. But in God, and he's this is his quote. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And this requires us to denounce ourselves, count ourselves as worthless. So Israel here, they're being judged in their sin, their evil, their wickedness, but that the, at the root of it all is pride. And they're unwilling, not unable, to see the signs that he gave him. Lewis says... How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. Lewis calls it an imaginary God, imaginary God which is partially true, and I wouldn't try to correct C.S. Lewis, but it's really, from what I can see, the worship of self. And so in that case, it is imaginary because the God of self doesn't exist. It's a false God. But the God of self is a very jealous God. This is why the idol of self is so destructive to them. This is why their hearts are hardened. This is why they're unwilling to go to God with open hands. Their hands are full of themselves and they don't want to let go. So their evil, wicked hearts, stemming from pride, causes them to reject the Christ. Now this is the test, Lewis says, he says, the real test in being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. The former is probably better. This echoes Isaiah 6. Now, if you can't do this, most likely you have pride. So the root of all the judgment that we or anyone else will receive is based on what is in our hearts and whether we have pride. Now, there's two main things that Jesus gives us to help combat the wicked pride found in our hearts. The first one, he calls the sign of Jonah, which is his resurrection. 
So Jesus judges those who reject the resurrection, our first point. In the text, it reads, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what Jesus is doing here is comparing the sign that he's going to give them in the resurrection with the story of Jonah, which all of these scholars, these biblical scholars of the Old Testament will certainly know. But for you who maybe don't or need a recap, Jonah was a rebellious prophet on the run from God. God called him to the city of Nineveh, which was a great city in its time, but it was incredibly immoral. So God called Jonah to preach his message of wrath and repentance there, and he ran from God. He goes on the run. He ends up on a ship in the middle of the sea. God sent a treacherous storm, and then the crew found out why he was running from God, and they threw him overboard, and he was swallowed by a whale. Now, the text says fish, but since during this time they didn't have maybe the same breakdown of the animal kingdom, it could have possibly been a whale, but they called anything that lived in the sea a fish. But we call them whales because they're mammals. Um, so either that or it could have been a different creature that was extinct. Doesn't matter though. The point is it's a real sea creature that really swallowed Jonah and it really kept him in his belly for three days. Now, if you're worried about the science behind being in a fish for three days, I want to show you something neat I found. When Hebrew writers say three, and we're the same way if you think about it, it could be anywhere from three 24-hour cycles, which is 72 hours, so on your screen, you'll see the bars represent 24 hours apiece. Or if you can follow this, think of the second day first. You get the whole day and the whole night. That's 24 hours. And the first day, you, get, you have to have all the night. And then at least two hours of the daytime. So that's one day. It's only 14 hours. And then the third day, you've already done the night because that belongs to the second day. And then just two hours in the morning. And then boom, you're done. That's your three days. 40 hours. 40 is a great number. That's the that's number of completion God uses a lot. So, now this doesn't matter much because if you can't believe in, in Jonah scientifically, then I'm not sure how you're going to believe in the resurrection at all. The resurrection does not align with science. You must conform one to the other. But the reason I wanted to show you the three-day graphic is because sometimes scripture can be explained more with study, with commentary, with history, with other languages. But nothing that requires those tools is needed to have faith in Christ. We have his resurrection. We have his wisdom. But it's fun, and it can be very beautiful to study God at that depth, to study his word at that depth. So Jonah gets spit out on the land after he repents in the belly of the fish or the whale. He preaches the message of God begrudgingly to the city, and they all repent, and they're spared. Now, this sign of the fish, because you'd have to imagine, it doesn't say this clearly in the text, but the city of Nineveh had to have heard this story, and it's this story of the man Jonah and the fish that caused them, this sign that caused them to repent. But yet how much better, if you can explain Jonah scientifically, actually someone came up to me at the end of last service and said there was an instant where they found a blue whale, they pulled him up, they cut him open, and there was a live man in the belly of the whale. So you can explain Jonah scientifically, but yet how much better is Jesus, sign of the resurrection, and people will still not repent. Jesus is a new Jonah. He's a better Jonah. He loves God perfectly, and upon hearing God's call to come to the earth, he willingly left heaven to come. He lived a perfect life, did nothing begrudgingly. 
He was then crucified, a sinner's death, and swallowed not by a fish, but by death itself, by the grave. And then 40 to 72 hours later, he was raised in perfect power, forever defeating sin, forever defeating death. And this Jesus, so much superior to Jonah, and they still won't believe. So Jesus judges those who reject his resurrection, and that's why. But we also see that he judges those who reject his wisdom. This is where we're going to get into the story of the Queen of the South. First, let's read it in our text in Luke. It says, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So this is just a few verses, uh, eight verses we're going to read, and it's out of uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, so it'll be on the screen or you can find it in your Bible. And this is the only time that the Queen of the South is mentioned, except for the identical instance that's in 1 Chronicles. So it says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices, with very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he was offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now, Queen Sheba was a pagan. She did not know the God of the Old Testament. She was not invited to Jerusalem. She went there on her own accord. She traveled from the ends of the earth. Some believe it was a thousand mile journey. And then she was saved, seemingly, by hearing and believing the truth through wisdom spoken to her and riches shown to her. Now compare her with Israel. They knew the God of the Old Testament. They had memorized most of the Old Testament. They knew the prophets, the wisdom literature intimately. And constantly they were invited to come to Jesus as he was here on earth. They didn't have to travel to him at all. Jesus came to them. But they are condemned because they reject Jesus, who is infinitely wiser and richer than Solomon. Jesus has infinite and perfect wisdom to convince them against this, and they refuse his words. They refuse the words of the perfect Christ. His riches and his treasures are immeasurable. He's so much superior to King Solomon in every way, and yet these men who are primed to see it refuse to see it. The point of both of these cases is clear. Jesus is better 
He's more superior than anything else that we have. He's better than any other work and any other word that has helped anyone believe in the past. This is why we have no excuse. So let's try to close this out and apply it to us. If you're out there and you doubt, you're one who doubts, and I was for many years, so I can completely relate to this, I promise you. There will never be more or better information out about God that will convince you. There have been many more people who were able to believe with much less information than you have now and much greater doubts. With the rise of science, it's really done nothing but prove the Bible more true as, as time goes on. So you may think that we're evolving away from the word, but really we're just finding it to be more true. Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing else will happen that will have the power to convince you. You have the power of God's works manifested in his resurrection primarily, and you have the power of his words manifested in his wisdom, which is his claims to be God. That's, that's the primary word that we can latch on to. The only thing that's holding you back from God is your pride. When you're proud, it doesn't matter what evidence is shown to you. You have a foregone conclusion and you're going to come up with an objection. It doesn't matter what it is. Romans 125 says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So you may think in your doubt that you don't believe in God, but you do. It's just a different God. It's this God idol called self. You worship yourself. You love yourself. The creature and pride won't let you abandon the God that you've created because then what will be left? You'll have nothing. Unfortunately, though, we're, we're poor gods. When we create ourselves to be gods, we can't give anything of real substance to ourselves. We certainly cannot save our own souls. Remember the speeding illustration we used? We can't claim a mistake of fact on Judgment Day that our speedometer was broken. That would be like claiming Jesus' miracles weren't real. The Pharisees had every opportunity to, to attempt to do this, and they didn't. They couldn't. They saw them with their own eyes. They concluded logically there's no way they could attempt to denounce his miracles and get away with it in this day and time. So it would just be a feigned ignorance to attempt to claim mistake of fact in regards to the workings of Christ. And the mistake of law where you claim you never saw the road signs that it changed from 80 to 60 at night, well, even though we know it isn't a viable defense on judgment day, no judge is going to hear that, you won't be able to say you didn't see a sign. They were everywhere. You'll just have to admit that you were unwilling to see them. You are without excuse. One night, Romans 1.19, once again, it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Finally, Christian, this is why we have to be in the word. We've seen two things primarily. Jesus' judgments are on those who reject his resurrection and reject his wisdom. Said more generally, those who reject his works and those who reject his words. So we have to be the kind of church the kind of Christian, the kind of disciple that knows his works and his words better than we know anything else. Notice I didn't say better than anyone else. It's not a competition. It's for your own soul. 
If you're not steeped in the Bible, it's gonna be a discipleship by the world rather than the word. So I wanna close with um, one of my favorite, favorite psalms in regards to God's word, Psalm 119. And we're gonna look at eight verses and we're gonna get eight truths about God's word that we can take away with us today. So the first one, this is uh, Psalm 119, 25 through 32. We're gonna look at each verse one at a time. 25 says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. So we are dead, the word gives life. 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me. This is a confession. Teach me your statutes. So point two, if we are humble, the word becomes clear. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. This is like his commandments, his, his law. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. So point three, God is the teacher, but we have to show up. God does the work, but we have to show up. Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. God's word gives comfort and it gives strength. Verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. God's word provides protection from sin and instruction. Verse 30, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Faith in God's word leads us to action. 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Faith in God's word stands alone. There's no other hope after that. And lastly, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. In other words, when you set free my heart. This implies an ability. We don't have the ability to live right. God gives us that ability. So our last point is faith in God's work. I'm sorry, faith in God's word is a gift from God. The word is the answer for every single trial we endure. And if you need more proof of this, Psalm 119 is like 150 verses of proof of God's word and its, its power in our lives. It's the only way we're going to be... Of, it's the only way we're going to be able to avoid being discipled by the world rather than, I'm sorry, by the, by the world. We, it's the only way we're going to be avoid, able to avoid that. Come on, finish, Josh. We got to know the word and we got to keep it. Acts 17.30, and then we'll close. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, who is Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we love you. We thank you for this time that we are gathered here. Thank you for everyone in this church. I pray that you would lead us. I pray that you would guide us by your word, God. We thank you for all that you have shown us in your resurrection and your wisdom. Pray that you would make it clear to us, teach us, give us the strength to continue on and bless us this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.